This morning, we continue with Christmas Quest, the story of Tyrion, a young slave who was separated from his family. In previous weeks, we told how Tyrion spent his formative years in a lonely jail cell, until one day a soldier named Acker sprung him free with the goal of guiding him back to the royal homeland. If they make it there, Tyrion will be reunited with his father, brother, and sister in a grand event known as the King's Christmas Celebration. In our last episode, Tyrion leapt to freedom over a deep chasm, fell into an icy bog while harvesting oysters, and was nearly killed by a thief aiming to pry a pearl from his hands, a gift that was intended for his sister. The thief fell to his death off a mountain cliff, and Tyrion claimed his dagger as a present for his brother. The chilly winter breeze nudged Tyrion from the best night's sleep he'd ever had. He woke to see Acker preparing a simple breakfast of oatmeal and carrots. Eat up. We'll need to cover a lot of ground today. As he ate, Tyrion looked down at his bruised and bloody ankles. The cuffs of his shackles still dangled there along with the broken chains. His sandals were tattered. The thought of hiking in them was a grim notion. Acker sensed his concern. We're just a few miles from a town called Hadish. We'll get you some shoes there at the trader's market. Tyrion responded sadly. Sounds good, but the shackles, I, I think they're there for keeps. When we get to the royal homeland, the king has a key that'll unlock anything. He'll get those cuffs off you once and for all. Tyrion thought about the huge party they were traveling toward. Acker, this, this Christmas celebration, I don't think I'm going to belong there. I mean, I'm dirty and my clothes are torn. I've never been to school. I don't know what to say. I'm sure I'll do something to embarrass my family in front of the king. Trust me, the king will like you just the way you are. Acker clapped him on the back, and the pair returned to their hike. As they walked, Tyrion urged Acker to once again describe the lush scenes of the celebration and images of the royal homeland. The descriptions made the miles pass quickly, and Tyrion grew talkative and energetic. He again recounted the previous night's fight with the robber. Oh, you should have seen me, Acker. I mean, he lunged at me with that dagger. Tyrion pantomimed his counter moves. But I uppercut him with a right to the jaw and then I kicked his feet out. Acker listened patiently as the team punched the air. The whole time we were fighting, I was guiding him to the edge of the cliff. When he finally paused, Acker warned, I'm proud of the way you defended yourself, but you have to remain vigilant and humble. This world is filled with dangerous opponents who would love to tempt you away from your quest. The words lingered there until the duo rounded a corner, revealing a valley of huts and tents. This is Hadish. Hadish was just a backcountry dent in the road, but appeared as a metropolis to Tyrion's innocent eyes. They pushed through the open-air marketplace toward the shoe shop, past row after row of tents and vendors. Tyrion was enchanted by the flood to his senses. An exotic voice called out, All hail! We have a gallant young newcomer and his conveyor, begetting an air of auspicious fortune. Welcome to the shaman's nest. A tall man with regal posture glided to their path. He delicately nudged them through the flap of a large red tent, brightly lit with dozens of towering candle strands. 
He clapped his hands with authority, and charming assistants appeared with snacks and drinks. Refreshments, compliments of the house. My name is Scalabar. The merchant was dressed impeccably in a burgundy robe. Jeweled brass wristbands were matched to a crown atop his head, contrasted by a cascade of black braids that seamlessly segued from ears to beard. At the shaman's nest, entertainment is our venture. We barter for your time, exchanging pride for prize. Acker confirmed under his breath. It's a casino. Somehow the host was now holding Tyrion's polished stones. Oh, beautiful trinkets, my boy. I noticed when we met you were admiring my wristbands. They're made of imported brass, bejeweled with emeralds from the Eastern Realm. He waved them in front of Tyrion's nose. I think a game is in order, a triune challenge of guile, will, and skill, made all the more dramatic with a genial wager. You seem to be blessed with the only things required of you, beneficence, readiness, and willingness. Shall we? Acker reached to intercept his friend, but Tyrion blurted out, Absolutely! I love games! His bulging eyes locked happily on Scalabar. As quick as a coal is reduced to ash, we'll engage in a verse that can change in a flash. Fingers snapped, a spark of light. Suddenly a glass tray appeared in Scalabar's hand. Should you crack the code of the tale to be told, these spoils of brass will be yours to behold. He touched each bracelet with a flourish. An assistant banged a small symbol. Candles were snuffed, dousing the ambiance to a shadowy purple. The dealer spoke fluidly, words cascading like a song. I can sizzle like bacon. I am made with an egg. I have plenty of backbone, yet lack a good leg. I peel layers like onion, yet still remain whole. I have length like a flagpole, yet fit in a hole. This quiz is your challenge. A prize is your gain. Tell me the answer, and these bands you'll attain. As he voiced the poem, small wooden blocks etched with the images described in the story magically appeared on the tray, as if from nowhere. A mere wave of his hand seemed to bewitch the cubes. They tumbled in change. As he spoke, Scalabar's dizzying sleight of hand confused Tyrion. Are you breakfast? <laughs> Tis a clever guess, but alas. Sizzle like bacon made with an egg. Plenty of backbone, but lack a good leg. Peel layers like onions, yet still remain whole. Length like a flagpole, yet fit in a hole. The answer is... A snake. <laughs> Suddenly the cubes were gone, and a small yellow snake slithered around on the tray. Tyrion stepped back startled. The magician placed the marbles in the pocket of his robe. Tyrion protested, but Scalabar purred. Tis but one world, and this is it. One must gain the most toys before you quit. I promised a triune quiz. Part one has run, but parts two and three... Have just begun. He effortlessly, effortlessly slid the dagger from Tyrion's belt. A knife, the brand of a warrior's trade. Just a thing to assert for this game to be played. Tyrion looked at Acker, who crossed his arms and shrugged as if to say, You got yourself into this mess. The dazzling sorcerer touched a silver goblet, and it filled magically with a ruby liquid. 
A poor man seeks silver, the rich thirst for love, the wise yearn to soar with wings of a dove. The wine vanished, and in its place a white bird hatched from the cup and flew up onto Scalabar's shoulder. I'm thirsty for water, I leave when it's cold. I'm hungry for minerals, yet never for gold. The cup now overflowed with clear liquid and changed to ice at the tap of the wizard's wand. My suit is of brown, but my hat is of green. I have not a finger, yet own many rings. He spun in a swift 360, and his robe became a brown cloak. His crown replaced with a green felt beret. The tray showed dozens of shining gold rings stacked in a heap. Tyrion felt sweat on his brow. Uh, 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 are, are you a salesman? Scalabar shook his head. <laughs> clever, clever, but alas, not correct. The answer is a tree. Thirsty for water, leave when it's cold. Hungry for minerals, yet never for gold. Suit a brown hat of green, have not a finger but own many rings. The magician spun around and was once again dressed in his original robe and crown. What shall you wager for the next stage? A pearl, I see. It is worth a king's wage. The pickpocket now had Tyrion's pearl and two delicate fingers. Acker quickly pulled Tyrion back to a corner. If you haven't figured it out, it's a con. Scalabar's game is to mislead you with visual trickery, so you're too distracted to think. This time, close your eyes when he recites the rhyme. It's only when you're blind that you can truly see. See with your ears and your heart, not with your eyes. Tyrion stepped back up to Scalabar. Okay, let me get this straight. We go one more round, and if I win, I get back my marbles, my dagger, and your bracelets, the robe, and the crown? Correct. But if you lose, all your keepsakes are mine, including the pearl. Tyrion clenched his teeth and nodded. This time, Scalabar's tricks were more spectacular than ever. Smoke clouds billowed at their feet, the candles flickered and spat, Flower petals floated down from above like snowflakes. The challenge rolled off the trickster's tongue. You can have me, but cannot hold me. You can gain me, but quickly lose me. If treated with care, I can be truly great. But if betrayed, I will sorely break. Acker looked over at his young friend, whose eyes were tightly shut. Tyrion's lips moved silently and thought, repeating the poem to himself. You can have me, but cannot hold me. You can gain me, but quickly lose me. If treated with care, I can truly be great. But if betrayed, I will sorely break. He popped open his eyes and with a huge grin exclaimed, Trust! The answer is trust! The magician's jaw dropped. No, no, he can't. You guessed it. But, but I've never lost a wager. Tyrion reached up and snatched the crown. I'll take that. Acker derobed the shaman who remained motionless, now dumbfounded and wearing just a pair of dingy long johns. And these are mine too, I believe, Tyrion said, reclaiming his keepsakes. The duo emerged from the tent into bright sunlight. Acker was tempted to lecture, but instead burst into a laugh. Ahead of him on the path, he saw the scrawny team strutting with royal confidence, now wearing an ill-fitting purple robe, brass bracelets, and the oversized crown of a once magical monarch. 
Acker watched his pal for a few seconds, then jogged up to join him. Come on, kids. Let's trade that silly robe for a, a new pair of shoes. They went into the cobbler's shop and did just that, knowing that the long hike to the royal homeland still remained ahead. So Tyrion is broken out of a prison, a dark world, and told of another world he was created for, a world with a family, a world with a different set of priorities, a world where he will finally be unshackled fully and finally and completely from these shackles that have been upon him his entire life. And yet between the world he knew and the world he's headed toward, he is challenged to trust, challenged to resist temptation, challenged to resist deception. Challenged to hear the voice of the Christmas messenger rather than the voices of this world. Will he trust the Christmas messenger really is telling him the truth? Will he trust that the royalty, the identity, the treasures he has in the future are worth sacrificing and trusting in rather than giving in to the delicacies and the trinkets of this world? These are the questions he will ask. This is the journey of faith. This is actually the story of heaven. The story at Christmas that God would come to earth and tell us that we are born into a world that is broken and that heaven has come into this world to tell us that we are made for another place and another time, a place of beauty, a place of royalty. But between this world and the world still to come, we will face temptations. We will face a world filled with deception. We'll have temptations to choose the trinkets of this world in the present rather than holding on to the greater crowns of the future. Have you ever thought about Christmas that way? Have you ever thought about the story of life that way? But this child in the manger, this child born to Mary and Joseph, was more than just a unique birth, more than just an interesting story. The Bible declares it to be the story that our hearts long for, the story that what's sitting in that manger is something to contemplate, something to wonder. Is heaven really in the hay? Who is this babe in the straw? So who is this child? You can give him a hand if you'd like. Who is this babe in the straw? Is it really heaven in the hay? Is really there another world we're made for? You know, when you survey Americans, religious or irreligious, 67% say they believe in another world, a heaven. But even if you eliminate the religious and talk to the unconvinced about the Bible or Jesus, 37% still say they believe in heaven or another life. Yet I think there's a general idea that heaven is unscientific, that ideas of the afterlife or are maybe wishful thinking. I want to discuss why the idea of heaven, especially heaven coming to earth at Christmas, is so hard to believe. Let me address two myths. The first myth is this, that if I can't see it, it's not real. This again, this presupposition is based on the Enlightenment, which said that if you can't touch it, if you can't see it, it's not true. So in this series, we've been looking at the fact that there is truth that can be spoken to us through novels, through feelings, through instincts, things that really are true beyond what you can see. And even scientifically, think about visual light. The amount of actual visual light that you're able to see with your eyes is but a mere sliver of what we know exists in the actual visual spectrum. 
Meaning we have tools, we have techniques that we know that there is so much more out there than what you and I can physically see. And imagine the tools we have not yet invented. It is very rational and scientific to know that there is far more out there than what we can see and what we can touch. Even science teaches us that. H.G. Wells, in his book, The Country of the Blind, tells a story of a small village that existed in a valley between two mountains. Unfortunately, there was an epidemic. And as this epidemic spread, the result was everyone in that village, after they even recovered, were now blind. And it was hereditary now in such a way that all of their children now were born blind as well. Yet an entire civilization living in a valley, not knowing there was a world outside of their valley, outside of those mountains. They will never see because they don't have the ability to see. They would require someone with a greater view of all things and all places to come into their village and say, there's a whole other world out there beyond the mountains that you were made for and created for. They could never find that world by themselves because they lacked the ability to see. Our second myth is the idea that if it's not scientific, it's not true. Only science tells us and gives us a way to know truth. And that's why this series has been so different, because we're saying, actually, there's lots of ways to know truth. There's lots of things that you and I know are truth that are not scientific. We say that's wrong when an innocent person is killed. That's not scientific, but it's a gut instinct of what's true. We have an idea that this world filled with cancer and devastation, that the world shouldn't be this way. Yet through general observation of history, you'd say, well, I guess it should. That's how it's always been. Yet something in your mind says, no, no, there's something true. We should have a more just society. We should have a kinder. I should be a nice person. It's not scientific. That's a level of truth that speaks to instinct and gut. And often you find it more in a story than you do in your science textbooks. C.S. Lewis in his book, in the Narnia series, The Silver Chair, tells a story about a white witch who has captured the children and placed them in a dungeon and tells them, this is the only world there is. You were born for a dungeon. You're born for darkness. Yet the children would play games. And as they began to invent these games, they would invent a game of a whole other world with a giant light in the sky with a hero named Aslan who would come and rescue them from this broken world and lead them to a world of imagination and a world of magic and a world of wonder. To which the white witch pulls him aside and says, There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky. There is no Aslan. To which the children turn to her and reply and say, All right, suppose we've only dreamed it up or made it up. All those things, the trees and the grass and the sun and the moon and the stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that the made up things seem a good deal more important than your real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. Where did we get these ideas? That we should act a certain way, that there should be a better world, that there could be a better world. It's as if we were made for a different world we've never seen but still believe in our hearts. We're in the country of the blind. Having some sense is a greater world. Imagine you're Marco Polo. 
You've just returned to Italy. You've just stepping into the courts of the Kublai Khan, and you're about to describe to the people you've grown up with what China is like. I mean, it's a whole other world here on this planet with earthlings. But you're trying to describe to people who've never been there how different it is, how unique it is, this whole other world. And so you're, you're reduced to metaphors and similes. Well, it's kind of like, it's as if, well, imagine if you take a piece of this and a piece of that, and then just so much more. The taste, the spices, the flavors, the culture. And this is what God does in bursting from his world to ours. He uses metaphors from our world to try and help people in the country of the blind understand a world they've never seen but always hoped for. Jesus makes the invisible heaven visible on earth. And he shows us, teaches us, how the invisible heaven that we all long for can be made visible on earth even here and now. The story of Christmas is that heaven is in the hay, and more than that, heaven's prayer is in the hay. He wants to know what heaven is like, what heaven prioritizes, and how even now, like our orphan, caught between two worlds, not yet there, but moving toward it, how do we make the priorities of heaven manifest right now in this broken world? Well, it's astounding that heaven would be in the hay. In fact, that's what the angels come and say. Look what the angels say in the passage. An angel from another realm says to them, these shepherds, do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The realm I'm speaking of, the royal homeland, is a place of incredible joy. And it will be to all people. Everyone is welcome. And there is born to you this day. This moment a portal has opened in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you know heaven is in the hay. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And all of a sudden, more angels appeared from the heavenly host and said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. For me, as we've heard the story so often in the Peanuts cartoon or in going to church, we've lost the wonder of it. The word Christ means the anointed one. But here's what it says, the Lord. The word Lord is a Greek word. It means kurios, which means the master of the universe, the commander of the world, the self-existent one, your creator, the one that made everything in a little bitty space, in a little bitty manger. Heaven, your creator, has become a creation. There's mystery there. There's wonder there. Heaven has burst through and come into our world to say you're not alone. There is another world you're made for. And heaven comes into this world to serve us. We immediately see that the priorities of heaven is that heaven comes not to lord its power over others, not to make demands. But when heaven prioritizes, heaven prioritizes giving unto others and serving other people. And not just anyone. Heaven's going to serve a traitor nation, a rebellious creation that has spit in his face. And instead of turning his back and saying, fine, let them deal with their problems. Heaven says, no, I want to help them, rescue them, tell them and serve them. The God of the universe, not lording himself over others, the Lord instead serving his creator, even traitors. Now that's an imaginative story. 
And yet it's not rooted in story. It actually is rooted in actual history. That heaven would come to the hay to say that what God in heaven is all about is giving and serving others. Can you imagine a world, it's not our world, where everyone's motivation all the time is to give and serve others? Talk about put on your imagination cap. Imagine a marriage with no self-centeredness. It's going to take a while to think about that. Imagine children who always want to serve their brother and their sister and their parents. That'll take a while to imagine that. And yet something in you, every time you see your kids fight, every time you have a conflict in your marriage, you say, oh, if only it could be that way. And heaven says, heaven's priorities is that it will be one day. And if you want to make heaven manifest on earth, you can begin to live out the priorities of serving others, even your enemies, even your traitors, even those who've harmed you or hurt you. That is what it looks like when heaven comes to earth. In the book of Ephesians, it tells us that God's imagination is far beyond yours or mine. It says to he who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all you can think or imagine, is what one of the commentators says. Now, I can think and imagine a lot. My imagination runs wild. And God says, whatever you imagine heaven to be, multiply it times 10 million, and you're not even close to the joy and the fearlessness and the adventures and the challenge and the things I have in store for you. To which we say, Chad, it's a nice idea, but it's just not true. The idea that there's another world, just this close to our world, that we can't see, but, it, but, but that we want to be true. I want to challenge you that through beauty and instinct and through these ideas of truth and justice, things you can't touch but you know are real, there is another world just this close to where we are now. Haven't you walked along the beach and you see a beautiful sunset? And as you're watching that sunset, something in you says, wow, the beauty of it. Wow, the majesty of it. Something in you says, wow, there's a greater purpose. There's a greater plan. I am in awe. Every day, the sunset looks pretty much the same. Yet every day, if you live down in, or on vacation, or you've got a second home down in Florida, every day you'll notice right before sunset, everybody brings their chair out. Everybody sets it down. Wow, it did it again. Speaking to a world of beauty and majesty that is just a sliver away. And yet even more, there is a world that you can see just a sliver away when you see that sunset over the ocean. But you've got to peer in. It requires you to put on a mask, maybe put on a snorkel, and plunge into that other world. And right around where you were is a whole other world of colors and textures and creatures in fact, you've got your snorkel on and you're with someone you love and you're so amazed by it, you're like, did you see that? Did you see that? The, 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 the fish, it flows like a bat. When you see a stingray, look at the coral, look at the colors. And, and you were just walking along the beach a moment ago and just you were this close to another dimension of incredible creativity and sound and wonder, but you had to peer in to discover the mystery of it. In the same way, God says, if you take every color, every memory, every imagination, everything you've ever thought to be true, and you pile up all your greatest moments in life, 
and multiply it times a million, and you're still not close to what the world is you were made for. And that's why I broke through and burst in and said, heaven is in the hay. One of the greatest books we have available at the book table describing how the Bible teaches about heaven is called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. But it's interesting, the guy who wrote the book is a bit of a skeptic, or at least he was. He tells a story about growing up in a very, very difficult family. His parents fought all the time. There was at least verbal abuse that went on constantly. They did not believe in God. There was no speaking of God. And he loved science. He got himself a telescope. And he said he would look through that telescope at the Andromeda Galaxy, which is hope and wonder that there was some purpose in the world, that he was made for something more, that he was part of some bigger story. But he said night after night, as he looked at the stars as a child, he just saw emptiness. So instead he plunged himself into science fiction, into stories. He plunged himself into comic books. And he was filled with wonder that there could be a whole other world, that somebody could come from another world, Krypton, and use their power not to dominate, but to serve other people. He loved the idea that there was a hero that could rescue us, that could fix the world. He loved this stuff. He wanted it to be true, but he knew it was just imagination. Well, as he was growing up, pondering these things, more inspired by science fiction and comic books and novels than he was about life itself. He came across a book called The Problem of Pain, written by another agnostic named C.S. Lewis. And many of the problems he wrestled with, there can't be a good God because of the problem of evil, C.S. Lewis had worked through those problems, one after another, giving great, reasonable, scientific, philosophical answers to why the Christian answer to evil really makes sense. The answer is not yet God's going to do it, but he will. And he works in the midst of this broken world with deception, this broken world with with shackles still somewhat on our feet as we wander through with a dying body and and a broken heart. He wondered if C.S. Lewis wrote anything else. He never heard of the guy. So he walked in the library one day and he picked up another book called Out of the Silent Planet. Now, this one was a nonfiction novel. C.S. Lewis is known for his Narnia series, but this was his science fiction version of Narnia. He read this book about being born on a planet, and that planet was broken, and it was silent. All the other planets, the gods talked all the time, but this was the planet that longed to hear a voice of the outside world. And he was caught up that all of a sudden, what he always hoped for, this idea of another world, a savior, was he's being drawn into the message of the Bible through nonfiction, through fiction, through the scientific story. He ended up picking up more books, the Narnia book, Mere Christianity, and over his journey, he got drawn to the God of the Bible through both fiction and nonfiction, through both story and fact, to the point at which he believed Jesus did exist and he did come, that he filled his greatest dreams and hopes and wonders. He says he went back to his home years later and he actually found that old telescope. He just thought for fun one night, he pulled it out to see if he could look up at these stars again and He's looking down into that. He was shocked at the emotion that came over him. Because this time he looked out and he didn't see white stars of meaninglessness. He began to weep. He said, I know the God who made the stars. And I now know he knows me. And he was overwhelmed that the exact same scene that filled him with despair could now fill him with incredible joy because he knew, he knew the God who made the heavens 
who had come to earth to show him the way back to heaven. Heaven is in the hay. And heaven comes to give and sacrifice for you and I. And if heaven is willing to come and give and sacrifice for you and I, the question is, are we willing to go and give and sacrifice for others? If heaven's priorities are to serve other people, then to put heaven on earth today means that we would go and serve others the way heaven served us. One of my favorite Christmas stories is The Grinch. My dad never felt like it was Christmas if we hadn't watched The Grinch special. Well, imagine we living in this three-dimensional world. We, we have the book, the, the two-dimensional book of The Grinch. And I tell you about these who's down in Whoville, and they're in trouble. Oh, my goodness, they're in trouble. There's conflict between them. And worse than that, a Grinch has been released into their world. And the Grinch is about to ruin Christmas. It's about to destroy everything that's good about the town. And I ask you, you, in your three-dimensional world, where you can move left, right, back and forth, would you be willing to leave your three-dimensional space to go into a two-dimensional book? where you will have an x-axis and a y-axis, but you'll never have a z-axis, you'll be flat? Would you be willing to give up your freedom, your comfort? What would it look like for you as a multi-dimensional, three-dimensional being to suddenly be restrained into a two-dimensional world? It might be painful. It might be difficult. Certainly uncomfortable. Would you be willing to give up your three-dimensionalness for who's and whoville? Will you enter the story? Will you step into the story? That's what God did. God, a multidimensional being, outside of the bounds of time and space, limited himself, restrained himself to step in, to squeeze himself into our three-dimensional world. Because he wanted to come and serve two-dimensional people who didn't even know there's a world outside of their book. You see, the who's think that their world in this little book is all there is. And yet we know there's a whole greater world, a whole greater universe, a whole greater solar system. But how would the who's and whoville know if we didn't step in to rescue them, to help them? Christmas is about heaven stepping into the book. God living in the luxury of ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate beauty. Will he respond to us, the who's of Whoville? We cry out for help. I keep doing what I don't want to do. This world is broken. Will God give up to go and rescue us? Will he leave the penthouse for the outhouse? Will he leave a place of ultimate joy and peace for the pettiness of betrayal and backbiting and ultimately crucifixion? Will he leave a place of joy to enter a world of anger and gossip and terrorism? Heaven says yes. Heaven's priorities are to give and serve others, even at its own expense. You ever wonder what Jesus was thinking? Like right before he stepped into the book. Multidimensional being, experiencing all joy from all time. I'm about to step in. Do you know the Bible tells us what he's thinking just before he steps into the manger? That's intriguing, isn't it? The book of Hebrews tells us that right before he steps into the book, right before heaven comes into the hay, he launches a prayer. 
Because not only is heaven in the hay, heaven's prayer is in the hay. Here's what Hebrews tells us. It says, therefore, when he came into the world, he's just about to come into the world. And what happens? Just before he comes into the world, he says, he prays, he's talking to God, and he says something. God, and immediately you have this idea that there's two persons of the Godhead talking to each other. Sacrifice and offering, you, my father, did not desire. All that liturgy, all that religion, all those good works, you didn't really want all that. That didn't satisfy. That didn't work. That wasn't helping the two-dimensional people realize there was a three-dimensional world. Oh, they were doing lots of religious activity, but they didn't get it. It wasn't working. So what did you do? You gave me a body. It was prepared for me so I could enter the two-dimensional world and tell them of the three-dimensional world they were designed for. And all of the good works that didn't cut it, you would use my body prepared for me to solve what was broken in their world. He goes on to saying, you took no pleasure. No pleasure in their offerings. What? All their tithes and offerings didn't really cut it? No. All their sacrifices, going to church and making looks of things and holding them? No. None of that dealt with the real problem in the human condition. We don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's, and all of our offerings and all of our sacrifices. God didn't even take pleasure in it. So, he made the ultimate plan that God would come from his realm, put on a body, and look what he says, to do your will. So what is God's will? God's will is that God would come and not only give and serve, but he would give and sacrifice. God says, I will sacrifice myself for the traitor generation. I will sacrifice myself for my friends, and I'll sacrifice myself for my enemies. I will do unto the who's and whoville in the country of the blind what they cannot do for themselves, because what heaven loves to do is serve and give and sacrifice for others. And the passage continues. The passage says that as he is stepping into his body, as he's about to step into the picture, As he's about to say, I've come to do your will. And think about the words of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you begin to practice the values of heaven on earth, heaven is in the hay. When you sacrifice, when you serve, when you find forgiveness, you're practicing what happens in heaven on earth. You're on that journey like the orphan saying, I believe in the values of the homeland and I'm going to start living them out now. That God pierced in, he broke in to find me. Look at that last part. But that will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That what Jesus would do by being born and ultimately dying would make up for and be far better than all the religious activity, all the philosophy, all the other things that sort of had good intentions but didn't cut it. Heaven sacrificing for heaven would be the way you and I could know for sure, not I hope, not I wish, not maybe, for sure that you can go to heaven. Because it's not based on what you do. It's based on what heaven did. That's why the angels say not, I got some good advice, be a good person. They say it's good news. News is not something you do. News is something that was done. Heaven, the news. Heaven came and sacrificed for you. C.S. Lewis was uh, good friends as an agnostic and atheist with J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings series. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but let me give you a little more detail on it. 
Then they were dialoguing together as an atheist. He says, I love these old stories, the Nordic literature, the Greek literature, the Roman literature. I find myself strangely moved by literature and yet unmoved by Christianity. Tolkien, who is a Christ follower from the Catholic tradition, he turned to Lewis and said, Lewis, if your view, your atheistic view of the world is true, then think about it for a moment. Think. That means you have no ultimate meaning or purpose. You're just a random creation of a random process. It means that you're here for a little sliver of time and then you rot to death. You're not around. Nobody cares about what you did. Nobody's going to know who you are in about 100 years. There's no wonder trees grow because there's a scientific principle. Atoms are eventually going to be destroyed and eventually our sun's going to turn into a black hole, maybe certainly sizzle out and everything's going to grow incredibly cold and there'll be nothingness. That's what atheism teaches. But because he was a poet or because he was an artist, Tolkien wrote all of that to him in a little poem that sounds a little bit like Dr. Seuss. Let me read you his poem. It's a really interesting poem. This is from Tolkien to suit Lewis. You look at trees and label them just so. For trees are trees and growing is just to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace. It's just one of the many minor globs of space. A star is a star, some matter in a ball. Compelled to courses mathematical. Amid the regimented cold inane, where destined atoms at are each moment slain. He's like, wow, that is what I believe. That's kind of depressing. So C.S. Lewis began to think about this other world that he loved encountering in other stories of other cultures and why he never encountered that in how he understood Christianity. And he reflected on that later in his journal, and he said it was that idea that ultimately drove him to consider Christianity. He said, Dyson, another Christian friend, and Tolkien showed me that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. Again, if I met the idea of a God sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much. I was mysteriously moved by it. Again, the idea of the dying and reviving God similarly moved me, provided that I met it anywhere except in the Bible, the Gospels. The reason was that in the pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp. Now, the story of Christ is simply the true myth, the myth working on us in the same way as the others. But with this tremendous difference, it really happened. And do you see how C.S. Lewis and Randy Alcorn came to know Christ and the truth of it through literature, through wonder, and then they found the evidence from philosophy and archaeology and history to back it up? Both are equally important, but this pathway of wonder is so critical. And more than that, it's so practical. Because if heaven is in the hay, its priority is to give and serve. If heaven's prayer is in the hay, its priority is to give and sacrifice for other people. To which if you choose to go on the journey to the royal homeland... The challenge between this world and that is, will you do what Jesus did? Will you make heaven visible on earth today? Through your priorities, through your living, through your serving, through your sacrifice, and through your giving. Seven years ago, when we decided to adopt, we had no idea that that adoption would lead to adoption with blindness, adoption with 
autism, adoption with banging of heads and all the challenges that we knew not of. We just knew that an 18-year-old girl had walked out of an abortion clinic and decided not to have an abortion and wanted to know if somebody would place the child or take the child. And we were thrilled to be part of it at one level. On the other level, I was weighing out the, we were seven years away from empty nests at the time. Seven years. At 45, I'd be free. It's been six years. It's been six hard years. It's been six difficult years. Six years of challenges like I never would have wanted or never would have hoped for. And yet we've had an opportunity to put heaven on display through this little guy who every time we say, let's take a picture for Halloween or for anything, he gives me a kiss on the cheek when we go to take a picture. And I've not only got to put heaven on display for him, but he's put heaven on display for me. As every parent of a special needs child will tell you, you see heaven in ways you won't any other way. In the midst of frustration, you see heaven. One moment you're sitting in, in the living room and I'm talking with Quinn uh, with little he talks and, and it's like pastoring a tornado. It's like pastoring or parenting a tornado or parenting a circus. And one moment he's sitting there watching Elmo and in two seconds he screams into the kitchen, throws the door open and runs out into the backyard. It's pouring down rain. You're getting up trying to stop him. And next thing you know, it's been three seconds. He's ripped off his shirt and he's running up and down the backyard, feeling the full sensation of every drop and laughing hysterically with the most innocent, beautiful laugh you've ever heard. And you're watching like that is a level of joy and beauty and being in the moment that I've never experienced before. And as I'm putting on my shoes and my coat to get him out of the rain, he jumps up on the trampoline and two seconds later, every piece of clothes is gone. He's jumping up and down on the trampoline, naked as can be. It's freezing cold. This is a couple weeks ago. It's 40 degrees outside. And just in the moment, joy, innocent, pure joy. As I'm pulling him back in, I'm saying, God, you're teaching me so much about a, a way of experiencing joy that I would not have known. And yet in the deepest hardship and sacrifice that I've ever known, we chose to put heaven on display And ironically, heaven chose to put itself on display for us by serving and sacrificing others. You see, in heaven, heaven forgives. So when you forgive, you put heaven on display. In heaven, everyone serves one another. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit serve one another. So when you serve one another, you're part of that royal homeland. When you love one another, when you accept one another, when when you're a peacemaker and you unify Conflict. You're putting heaven on display. When you're a lawyer and you're fighting for justice, when you're a doctor and you're bringing healing, you're putting heaven on display. One of my neighbors went with our Belize team. We've been going down for about 13 years. We've built like 500 homes, this little village by now. We give away about $2 million every year worth of free services and village clinics and, and, and plastic surgery. And I was talking to Michael this summer, and he had gone down a few years ago, and one of his greatest fears is that he would have a child in a third world country doing these complex surgeries under anesthesia and something would go wrong and a child would die because he wouldn't have the type of equipment he has here in Cincinnati to have for backup. And sure enough, his worst fears were realized as he put Gilberto Chi under the anesthesia and he had an allergic reaction to it. And all of a sudden, in his greatest fear, he thought, I'm going to lose this child I don't have the backup equipment in a third world country I would have for this kind of condition. 
they're able to save the child's life. And as he comes up out of anesthesia, they called in the parents to let them know that they couldn't fix the cleft palate and the malnutrition issues would continue to be a problem. And it would have been easy for our team and Michael as well to say, well, you know, I gave up a vacation. We tried our best. We helped a lot of people. I guess this one we just can't get. But God prompted Michael and others on our team to say, we have got to find a way to bring him to America where he can have that. But once he moves to America, it's about $100,000 or more surgery. And so Michael used his connections to call hospital after hospital all around the world and talk him in to giving a free 100000 or more dollar surgery with all the legal ramifications, all the challenges. Imagine, you're lawyers. You want to do what? And they're not paying for it? And after a long journey of months and maybe even years, he's... Gilberto Chi will be here this February, and he will have that surgery at Children's Hospital because a group of doctors from our church and nurses and friends use their connections to say, we want to serve someone who can never give back. We want to help someone who can never give us anything in return. Heaven on display. That's why heaven is so practical. In the book of Philippians, it says, let this mindset, the mindset of heaven, be upon you. That God came and died, death on a cross for other people. Heaven loves to give of itself, to serve, to sacrifice. And let that mindset be in you. I don't want to dig too much more into that because this is going to be the basis of our Christmas Eve service. We're going to do eight Christmas Eve services on the same day this year. You might want to sign up for the last one. You can watch them sort of carry me off on a stroller, on a carrier. We're going to have tickets available when you leave today out by the fireplace. So grab tickets for you and your family for any of those eight things. And we are going to show, beyond just putting heaven on display, the principles in this text are so practical. They will change your marriages. They will change your relationships. They will find ways in which you can put heaven on display in such a powerful way, so practical way, that you will leave this Christmas Eve service with you and your friends and go, oh my goodness, that would change everything. Now, Joshua Bell is a virtuoso. He's 39 years old, and he is known to be one of the most incredible violin players in the world today. At age 39, he plays in Symphony Hall in Boston and London. Even the cheap tickets are only $100. And his artistry and his musicianship is so powerful that when you're watching him or listening to him play, people cough at just the right time. They'll hold it until between sets because they don't want to ruin the moment of the music. They brought a challenge to him. You see, in 1998, he actually starred and played in one of the movies, The Red Violin. The music was so powerful and so beautiful, it won an Oscar for the best original dramatic score. When the composer received the Oscar, he stood before all of the world and said, Joshua Bell plays like a god. So he said, what if we took this godlike music that you have to pay at least $100 or more, and what if we played it in the subways of Washington, D.C.? He said, well, if I'm going to do it, I want to play my personal violin, $3.5 million instrument in the subway. He decided to play Bach's most difficult piece, a 14-minute piece of music called Chacon, I believe, 
And as he's playing this piece of music that most people don't even dare to attempt, let alone master, he's playing with all his passion and all his might. And people are running in through their typical day on their way to the subway. First 60 people on the security camera don't even turn to look. The 63rd guy was an elderly man. He's running in through the subway. He turns, sees the violin. Huh. And he continues on. As the video camera is caught, thousands of people would pass through that day, not recognizing this godlike musician, this incredible instrument, or one of the most powerful and beautiful pieces of music ever written by Bach. Joshua says at the end of the day, he reached into this bucket in front of him and he had made $32. He said he's not used to being ignored when he plays. But God took the music of heaven and God who doesn't just play like a God but is God said, I'm going to take it from the top shelf and go and put it in a manger. I'm going to come into the subway. I want to dwell in the country of the blind. And I want to play the music you were made for. The music you long for. And he asks us to respond simply by saying, God, welcome to my world. I want to play the music of heaven in my marriage, in my life, in my community, with my friends, and even with my enemies. God, welcome. Welcome to my world. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you chose to step into the book and step into the valley to put on display what we needed and the music we needed to pour out of our lives. We invite you this Christmas season to come into our world. And more than that, we ask you to take your world and put it into ours. Bring your comfort, your peace into our relationships, into our mind, into our anxiety. God, that truly your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you uh, came prepared to get some tickets, over by the fireplace, all eight services are available even now. Thanks again.